Good evening. I'll be uh, reading some of God's word for us. Justin will be speaking to us on uh, the message of the prophet Amos. And so we'll read a few passages uh, from that book. Uh, But first, I'll read from uh, the first letter to the Corinthians. It's on uh, page 10 of your zines. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. We'll now read uh, some passages from Amos. Uh, We won't read them all, but I'll uh, let you know where we're going. So beginning uh, from the beginnings of Amos. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. And for three sins of Gaza, of Tyre, of Edom, of the Ammonites, of Moab, of Judah, I will not relent. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my, profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. 
in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. From Amos 7. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. And I turn the page and read from Amos 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. See what I mean? Heavy going. Let's see how we go with it. Let me pray and then we'll um, explore it together. Father, the prophet Amos spoke of a famine. Uh, but not a famine of food or of water, but a famine of hearing your word. Father, break the famine in our hearts this evening, that we may delight and feast on your word and the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're in a series on the so-called minor prophets, or the not-so-minor prophets. My prayer for you is that this, in this, during the series you'll fall in love with these books, these 12 books, these 12 smaller books, which is why they're called minor, not despite the tough words, but maybe even because of the tough words, because they energize you. More than that, that you'll have a greater love for the God who speaks and shows mercy. Many of us yearn to know exactly what God thinks of us. We are done, cooked with the conversation of what we think about him. And I want to respond to him properly. I want to have traction in my relationship with God. In the prophet Amos, he says, prepare to meet your God. And it doesn't mean you're going to die and meet him. It means you're going to discover who he really is uh, in his actions towards you. I want the traction of, of a child to a father can weave some Father's Day in for you. I want to experience God as He is, not simply as I'd like Him to be. And that's because God is a person, which means He likes some things and He hates other things. 
like injustice. Now, that's a surprise for some of us. But he's a, a father, an all-knowing one. He has ways of expressing his thoughts and does not appear embarrassed about expressing them. He has within himself bursting desires for humans and humanity and can't understand why people don't respond to him. He is the father in the parable of the prodigal son. My prayer for you is to experience God as you read these prophets, or as I've been saying, that you press your ear against God's chest and you hear his heartbeat. That you look through the window provided by the prophets and into the life of Jesus Christ. The idea of this series is simple. One prophet each week for 12 weeks with a break in between. And each week we'll have one big idea leading to one glorious saviour. The truth about the prophets is that they were an odd bunch. I love the Frederick Beekner quote. But there's no evidence to suggest that anyone invited a prophet back for supper more than once such an awkward bunch of people. Of course, sometimes, some people read the prophets and they are energized and some people read the prophets and they're depressed. I love what Walter Brueggemann said. Please turn to page two of your zines. The middle quote there, the larger one, Walter Brueggemann on the prophets. He talks about um, two functional qualifiers throughout the prophets, a critical uh, qualifier and an energizing qualifier. In other words, the critical function to everything the prophets say, and an energizing function. He says the functional qualifiers, critical and energizing, are important. He writes, I suggest that the dominant culture now, and in every time, is grossly uncritical, cannot tolerate serious and fundamental criticism, and will go to great lengths to stop it. Conversely, the dominant culture is a wearied culture, nearly unable to be seriously energized to new promises of God. We know, of course, that none of us relish criticism. I don't. But we may also recognize that none of us much relishes energizing either, for that would demand something of us. You're going to discover in the prophet Amos that there's eight chapters of the critical function and only one small component of hope at the very end. I spoke on this to a bunch of high school kids many years ago. And in those days, you used to have house parents at the, sitting up the back and sort of overseeing the, the, the proceedings. And I maintain this comment that Amos has almost no hope in it until the very, very end. And that's important that it's there. But, you know, a little few glimmers, if you seek me, you might live and things like that. Basically, it's a wall of negativity. And there's a mum up the back reading this through the children's grid thinking, oh, you know, a bunch of teenagers being depressed at the end of all this. And so she spent the talk half listening and half reading through Amos. She came up to me after and she said, you're right, you're right. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Unlike Joel who doesn't say what they've done wrong, Amos is full of, here's what you've done wrong. Today I want to speak in defense of God's right to be angry, his, his passion, and it arouses like a, like a lion, you'll see that in a moment's time. Here's what we know about Amos. He was a country boy, neither a shepherd. He's a shepherd uh, from the south, no doubt working class, he spoke to the north, to the rich elites of the north, like a farmer from Dubbo being chosen to speak to the elites of Macquarie Street. Amos spoke around 750 BC, that's just under 3,000 years ago, that's how old this literature is. When Amos wrote, there was a dark underbelly to what Israel was doing, and yet at the same time, 
uh, a veneer, a gloss of happiness. Israel was prosperous at the time, safe, because the Assyrian army was being held back by other battles in the north. And so the threat to Israel was minimized, and they assured themselves, therefore, of God's divine favor. They saw it as confirmation that God was blessing them, and they patted themselves on the back, and they grew complacent and presumptuous, uh, sort of spiritually flabby. They were high on prosperity and security, but low on obedience and faith. They did not love God with their whole hearts. They did not love their neighbors as themselves. They didn't trust Him, listen to His holy word. And it led to outright sin. Um, you know, classic sins. I saw, saw read their sexual sins. But it also led to them oppressing the most vulnerable in their society, an oppression of the poor and the needy that they were meant to serve. And you'll, if you read chapters 1 and 2, a stack of crimes against humanity. And here's the thing, God had an, has an opinion about that. So if you're looking on your outline uh, on page 14, you'll see Amos's message that the Lord roars. What can we do about it? Secondly, and thirdly, what does God do about it? Firstly, what was Amos's message? It's pretty simple, and it's this. He's angry, like the other prophets, and in fact, he roars. So chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel at a particular time. You can date it. Verse 2, he said, here it is, he said, here it is, the Lord roars from Zion. And he thunders from Jerusalem. And when he does roar and thunder, the pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roars. Doesn't whisper. And the roaring language here is that God is like, like God is a lion. Not a kitten. The Lord roars. He doesn't meow. Kids, by the way, get the difference between a lion and a kitten. They're both cats. A kitten is one type of cat, a lion another. God is not a kitten. <laughs> Many of us treat God as though he's a kitten and not a lion. That is, he's someone to gather near me at the end of a long day and sit near us or on us and give us comfort, someone you can pat but doesn't talk back. You know, the drive will be to domesticate God. But God settled and powerful and true opposition to sin and injustice and oppression of the poor is real. He's a lion and this lion will roar. If I can put it this way, he bears his teeth. You know that famous line in the Narnia Chronicles, Susan finds out that Aslan, the Christ figure, is a lion. She says, a lion, but is he safe? The response is, you know the response, of course he's not safe, but he's good, I tell you, he's good. Now remembering this is Israel in, a, in her darker moments with a veneer of happiness, 
So Amos, as I said a moment ago, has almost no words of grace until chapter 9, where the promise is new wine dripping from the hills, or she who was uprooted will be planted again, never to be knocked over again. We know that rooting uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'll come to that in a moment. But before we get there, before we get to chapter 9, you know, these are not my words, I, I would have dumped grace in at chapter 2 and then maybe chapter 5 and then popped another one at chapter 7. You know, just give people a little light relief every now and then. But I think the beauty of not getting to the grace until the end is that you let his settled, truthful, righteous wrath serve to jolt us, perhaps out of complacency and moveness somewhere. I'll tell you where in a moment. Abraham Heschel was a Jewish theologian who wrote about the prophets. He said, expositors of the teaching of the prophets are prone, that's me by the way, expositors of the teaching of the prophets are prone to dwell upon passages which seem to conform to their views and preferences. In other words, they find all the nice passages and put them on posters and sell them. But he writes, the harsh words The grave threats, the relentless demands are usually disregarded. But he says, I love this quote, one of my favorites. But he says, there are hurricanes in the world as well as lilies. There are hurricanes in the world as well as lilies. Painful things as well as all the good things in your life. So let me speak in defense of of God's right to be angry. Um... A large section of our society, most of it, will want to deny God the right to be angry. They'll say that feels too human. They'll scoff at it, really. But that God has anger means one thing. It means that he loves justice. He's the author of it. And, conversely, he hates injustice. He hates abuse, he hates evil, he hates crimes against humanity more than you do. But he has the power to do something about it. We feel angry when we see injustice and evil and we think that God feels nothing. How dare we think that, that I have the right to feel anger about crimes against humanity or about the abuse of children, for example, and say that God doesn't feel that way? Of course he does. I think the truth is some of us have difficulties with God's anger because we think he may fly off the handle. And some of us might have experiences of that that make us a little wary of passages like this. But God does not get angry the way we often do, which is impetuously. No, God is no bored Greek or Roman God, a victim to his own whims or desires. God has, as I said, a settled, righteous, holy, true condemnation of all that is wrong. And he truly sees it all. Jesus overturned the tables in the temple because it stopped people from praying to God. Of course he did. What a crime. Is he safe? No, but he's good. We have troubles with God's anger because we think, is that the right punishment that fits the crime? 
I take it part of that reason is that we deny God the right to give and take life. We don't want to say that he does. Or maybe we don't fully understand the depths of the depravity. Maybe we, we love the veneer. And maybe the veneer stops us from seeing the underbelly. Or perhaps we have troubles with God's anger because we worry that we too might be the object of his wrath. And here's the rub. The New Testament's clear. We are all dead in our transgressions and sins, all objects of his wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3, which begs the obvious question, well, what can we do about it? What can be done? Prepare to meet your God, says Amos, and you're like, I'm not sure I want it. Well, maybe there's something about him that will draw me to him. What can we do about it, this anger? Well, I've got five suggestions you might like to try, five things to do that didn't work for Israel. See if they work for you. They're all there in Amos if you read through the nine chapters. First thing to try, if you discover that God is angry at all sin, including my own, point out other people who are worse. Go the comparative mode. This is pretty classic. You point your finger elsewhere, chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 6. It's classic, and it's very Australian. The first thing Israel did was feel good about themselves in comparison to the nations that surrounded them. And it's a good strategy because it's pretty easy to believe that others are worse than you, especially if you're fairly law-abiding, tax-paying, and contributing. It's pretty easy to have a dividing line of good and evil where you're on one side and other people are on the other side. I love that famous quote from Solzhenitsyn, the dividing line of good and evil cuts through every human heart. And anybody willing to face the truth will say it is so. But Israel said, on the dividing line of good and evil, we're on this side and the nations around us are on the other side. And that's exactly how chapter 1 verse 3 to chapter 2 verse 6 works. For three sins of Damascus, says the Lord, even for four, who's counting, right? I will not relent because she did this and did that. And God names Damascus' sins. And you can see Israel who received this prophecy saying, you're right about Damascus. And you're right about Gaza in the south, verse 6. And you're right about Tyre, verse 9. And you're right about Edom and the Ammonites and the Moabites because they're the other people who are bad. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid and you could hear, is a, you know, perhaps you had siblings in the room with you and, and um, you'd hear that there was a parent that was angry and walking down the hallway and you're like, everyone goes quiet and it's like, hope it's not me, hope it's not me. And you feel some sense of relief when you discover that it's your brother, your sister, not you. I think there's a sense of this going on here that's like, yes, Gaza, yes, okay, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that. In chapter 2, verse 4, the Lord roars against Judah in the south. That's so close. Still not Israel. And so Amos, or rather God, is giving Israel enough rope in these two chapters. Because when they agree that those judgments are right against the other bad people, I'm glad God opposes them. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, God turns to Israel and says, this is what the Lord says for three sins of... Israel, <gasps> not us. Three sins of Israel, even before. I will not relent. Why? They sell the innocent for silver. 
the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample under the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed, etc. Pointing the finger elsewhere never really works. You know that simple but memorable saying, point the finger elsewhere and you've always got three fingers pointing back at yourself. If you want God to be opposed to some evil, like genocide or pedophilia or racism, if you want God to be opposed to some actions of the government, for example, then God has to be opposed to all evil, even the evil I commit. So you can't point the finger at other people. What else can be done? You could try number two, B on your outlines. You could project all of this as just fear tactics. In chapter 7, you've got this incredible exchange. A northern priest hears that this hick farmer from the south is preaching tough words that God is angry. And what does he do? He goes to the king and says, look, let's strong arm this guy out of here. He basically says to him, you're just using fear tactics. You know, you could add these days, you might go up to Amos and say, you should just love people into the kingdom. You should be preaching tolerance. Look at chapter 7, verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Let me tell you about Amos. He's raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear his words. Verse 11. For what Amos is saying is just so negative. So verse 12, then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to where you come from. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. See if somebody will pay you for all your negativity. Do all your prophesying there. Don't prophesy. Don't speak God's words anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Of course, there is such a thing as bad fear tactics. It's when you enlist an imaginary fear to manipulate someone to meet your personal ends. Fear tactics. Give an example. For a parent to say to a child, if you don't come to dinner right now, the police will come and put you in jail. See that? Just wrong, wrong. But if there's a tsunami coming, and I say to people on the, in the low-lying low, low areas, going out a higher ground, that's not fear tactics, it's the truth. And someone could come to me and say, don't say that, that's fear tactics, you'll upset them. So no, no, go to higher ground. I preached a sermon like this once, and a gentleman came up to me and he said, um, I didn't like what you said. I said, oh, what, what didn't you like? And he said, I didn't find it aesthetically pleasing. I wasn't trying to be aesthetically pleasing. Amos had a message that Israel will be judged and simply silencing the messenger doesn't do a whole lot, saying, go back to where you came from, didn't stop the Assyrian invasion coming in 722 BC. And if God's judgment is real, you know, you can't just go, oh, well, I don't, that's, well it's okay for me because I don't believe it, but what if it's real? So thirdly, what else can be done about it? Third, you could try and trust in your doctrine of assurance, your doctrine of security. Chapter 6, verse 1. 
we in the evangelical tradition have a strong theology of assurance. It comes right out of the Reformation. And we say because Jesus has done the full and complete finished work of salvation, I can be assured of the forgiveness of sins and rise tomorrow confident. And rightly so. Bang on correct. It's exactly the message of the New Testament. But whatever else we say about assurance, it is no license for sin or reason for complacency. You see, in the end, you trust God. You don't trust the doctrine of assurance, you see. And the people of Israel, this example is written down for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages have come. Because they had a doctrine of assurance, a very tight one. They mused, we have the promises, we're the children of Abraham, we have the land, we have God on our side, we have the temple. Nothing will stop us. But what does Amos say? Chapter 6, verse 1, page 12. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and you who feel secure on Mount Sumeria. Go look at the other nations, verse 2. Are they better, any better off than your two kingdoms? So they have a doctrine of assurance, but it has produced the exact opposite fruit that it's intended to produce, which is a settled confidence in, in God, right, in Him, that has made them assured in themselves and has made them arrogant. Will that help? No. Here's a fourth one, popular in the West, very Aussie. Bury yourself in pleasure, forget it all, and, uh, you know, sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Don't think about it. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. You who lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches, right, flicking Netflix. You dine on choice lambs, very Australian, and fattened calves. You've got your Christian CDs. You strum away on your harps like David and you improvise on your musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowl full, full and you use the finest lotions, makeup, but you do not grieve. You don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You see, indulgence often stops you from grieving your own heart, the state of the world. Indulgence often stops you from thinking about the tough things of life and tough truths. But there are hurricanes in the world as well as lilies. Alcoholism gives you the illusion that you're escaping and makeup, clothing, interior decorating, enjoyable and fun as it is to some in a world that God has created. It's possible, it's possible, as they did then, to bury yourself in these things as a safe way to avoid the bigger issues. And the bigger issue is this. You do not grieve over the state of our world, over the ruin that is Joseph. We don't know anymore what is good. We've lost touch with what is worth grieving. And you could say, well, I know what to do about God's anger, and that is to become more religious, to go to church and sing more, or sing sweet songs, contemporary songs, 
or perhaps old hymns that make us remember a former time. Um, I find it fascinating that God had an opinion about the worship services in Israel in 750 BC. He saw them as empty and superficial. Chapter 5, verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. They stink. <laughs> verse 23, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but rather let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. I'm done with your worship service. Here's what I want. I want justice to roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Singing is a beautiful activity, but it doesn't deal with sin. Never has, never will. Singing is not atonement. Singing, worship of the living God, does not bridge the gap between you and God caused by sin. It doesn't deal with the past. Worship, in fact, is what we do with our lives after the bridge has been gapped. So, what are you going to do about it? I can't point the fingers at others. I can't reject it as fear tactics. I'm not going to trust my doctrine of assurance. I can't bury myself in pleasure. Even my church attendance doesn't count. So where can I find security? Where can I hide? The psalmist in Psalm 130 says this, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? What's the answer? If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? What's the answer? No one. So where shall I find a rock? To stand on? Where shall I find rest for my soul, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a confidence that carries me through the day? Where can I find a haven of grace that does not lead to complacency, but rather leads to a renewal of love for Jesus Christ and the grief over this fallen world and a desire to do something about it? What can I do about the anger of God? Well, I thought about it in reference to Amos, and I came up with this. What can I do about the anger of God? Nothing. Zero. Zilch. Why? Well, it's in the nature of all our relationships. You see, if I've wronged someone, it's not me in the end that mends the relationship. I can say, I'm sorry, that'd be a pretty good place to start to lodge an apology. But even saying, I'm sorry, is not the reason that the anger is removed in the person that you've wronged. You could never say, for example, look, I said I was sorry. You should be fine about it now. That never works. I could bring God the proverbial flowers. But flowers don't deal with the anger. They're a wordless, I'm sorry, and sometimes they're not even that. You say, well, I'll try harder, be a better person, a bit more religious. But that doesn't deal with past sin. And trying harder, the New Testament says, really leads to lasting heart change. And so I take it that the only way that I'm to find any security before a holy God is to discover that he is willing to be gracious to me. In you, God, only do I lie down in safety. If the wronged party, if God is willing to do something about his own anger, then I might stand a chance. If God is willing to show me transforming grace, I'll sit up and listen. 
that psalm goes on. If you're a law kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared. And we find that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He is my rock, he is my shelter, he is my rest. In him there is therefore now no condemnation. I need to find my security in his love towards me. The book ends with a note of hope, <laughs> pushing you forward to the life of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the life of the world to come. Well, the prophet finishes by saying, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll restore David's fallen shelter, I'll repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And next week we're going to talk a little bit about Israel in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and how it fits into the way we think about life and Israel now. But in this promise in the future, we discover that new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And God says, I'll plant you. I'll put the roots down deep, never again to be uprooted, says the Lord, your God. We know that day and we know that confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, there are some natural reactions when we discover that someone is upset or angry with us, especially when we discover that they're angry with us for righteous reasons, good reasons. And we get defensive and we squirm and we um, find some, something or someone else to blame. And we minimize the damage and the things we've done wrong and we can do the same thing with you but tonight father i pray that we'll no longer do that and we don't have to do it for when we come before the throne of god above we discover that we have a strong and a perfect plea we have a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and intercedes for me tonight father we take bread and wine with joy knowing that our forgiveness is taken care of and your love complete. We thank you, Father, for Christ's sake.